they say that once you begin speaking to yourself, you're on the sure and certain decline. And though they might not say anything to you right away, you can be sure that your family is watching and listening and uh, noticing whether there is further declension. That's what they say. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says that it's a good thing to speak to yourself. Of course, that all depends on what you say when you do so, but this is the very thing that the psalmist does here in Psalm 146. He says to his soul, O my soul, praise the Lord. And then we get the privilege of eavesdropping on what he does say to his soul. Actually, that's not entirely accurate because the whole psalm, though he is speaking to himself as, at first, committing himself to worshiping this God as long as he lives and to sing praises to this God as long as he has been. At the end of the song, he then turns to the church, to Zion, to the people of God. And he tells them the same thing that he is telling himself. So what is it that the psalmist is telling us this afternoon? And what are the sorts of things that we ought to say to ourselves when we're alone? How are we to encourage ourselves in the Lord? Well, the first thing the psalmist says is that he warns us there in verses 3 to 4 that we ought not to put our trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And certainly what the psalmist is speaking about is about the movers and shakers of society, those who can make decisions and then put those decisions into effect. He's talking about governments, about kings and rulers, about those who have ability to affect change in the world. And he's saying to himself, do not put your trust in these sorts of people, in the Son of Man, like them. And of course, it's not superfluous advice that he gives unto himself because that is actually our native inclination. That's what we tend to do when there is trouble. It's writ large over the scriptures. Just think about the Israelites. They're under attack from the Assyrians. So they could go to their God, the one who had promised that he would deliver them from all their enemies so that they would flee at from them in seven directions. But instead, the Israelites would go to Egypt and make an alliance there and expect them to help them against the Assyrians. And that's, that's the tendency of humanity, to go to people who are like us, maybe stronger than us, who have more capabilities than we do, but who are like us rather than turning to the Lord, our God. And so when a pandemic strikes, what do we do? We trust that the government will lead us out of this disaster. When there's economic failure, the government will invest money into our economy and deliver us. When we're sick, we go to the doctors. When we have difficulties of our mind, we go to the psychologists and the psychiatrists. We're always going to people to help us in our time of need. And maybe if you aren't like that normally, I can assure you that you are like that in terms of your native inclination, your instinctive response to difficulties. And I can assess that by an easy diagnostic test. Imagine that uh, 
You receive a telephone call from the doctor who tells you that there's bad news. And your first inclination is always to go to your wife or to your husband or to someone around you. And if no one's home, it's to pick up the telephone and to go speak to someone who is like you. Instead of speaking to the Lord, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, your gracious Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not folly for the psalmist to tell himself to not put his trust in princes. But then notice what he does. He, he tells you why you shouldn't put your trust in princes. He says, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. That's the problem with helping uh, those who, who help us, who are like us. They might be able to help us with a lot of difficulties and struggles and, and uh, matters pertaining to our body and the physical reality of our lives, but they have no salvation. What we need most, the salvation of our souls, is what they cannot help us with in any way. Their help is absolutely futile. There is no salvation in them. And the reason their help is futile is because they are frail. Notice what he says in verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So that they can have all sorts of schemes to help you. Cross all the T's, dot all the I's, leave nothing unthought of. Have this perfect plan that will come to your rescue. Only to not wake up the next day, to die, and their plans along with them perish, and they're unable to help you. There's a monument to that in Scotland. I used to live in Scotland, and so people, if they travel there, they occasionally give me a call and ask me for recommendations. Where should I go if I only have a few days to see the highlands of Scotland? And one of the places I invariably send them to is the town of Oban. It's on the west coast. It's a beautiful, picturesque town of 9,000 people. And if you catch it on a sunny day, which I'm told you can, uh, it's really a remarkable town. And, and you sit in the harbor, you stand in the harbor, and all the, the village and town is nestled around you. And then you, you look up on Battery Hill, and there's this massive structure made of granite. It was... Uh, designed to, to look like the Roman Colosseum. So it has two tiers with massive arches in it. It was started to be built in 1897 by John McCaig, who was a wealthy banker in the town. And he had grand plans for, for this. It's called McCaig's Tower after him. He was hoping that it would uh, have the, the two tiers and then there would be a center column and in the arches on that center column he would have statues of his siblings and his parents. The building would house a, a museum and an art gallery. He had all these great plans. When he started in 1897, in 1902, he died. The tower is also called McCaig's Folly. He had great plans, grandiose ideas, but he perished and died. And so for the 9,000 inhabitants of Oban and all the tourists who frequent that place, there is a standing monument to Psalm 146 verse 4, 
when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. That's why the folly of trusting in princes is warned against by the psalmist. He warns himself and he warns us as well. But it isn't just because of the futility of human help that he warns us against putting our trust in princes. He actually wants to thrust us to put our confidence in the Lord our God. So so really he's looking out for you. He has perhaps had the experience of, of putting his confidence in humans only to have them disappoint him time and time again. And so he he says, this is a better plan. This is the right option. This is what we ought to do instead. Instead of putting our trust in princes, we ought to put our confidence in the Lord our God, the one who made heaven and earth and who keeps faith forever. And just as he warned us why we ought not to put our trust in princes, so here he argues for us why we ought to put our trust and confidence in the Lord our God. Well, what is it about the Lord that that makes him so trustworthy? Why can we throw ourselves upon him in the certainty that we will receive blessing and help? Well, it's because of who God is. And the first thing that the psalmist tells himself and us about God is that God is strong. You see this in verse 6, that the one who has the help of the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, is someone who trusts in the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. He's a strong God. He's the one who by the word of his power has called all things into being. All the mammoth mountains you see, are a testimony to the might of the maker. All of the concern he has for microorganisms, things that you you cannot see to the naked eye, but you know they exist. All that testifies to the brilliance and wisdom and power and might of the God of Jacob, the maker of all things. He made heaven, he made the earth, he made the sea, he populated them all, and he did it all by his word. He said, let there be, and there was. And it isn't just that, that he created all things and then let things go. No, no, he keeps faith forever, which, which I think what he's saying, the psalmist is saying, is that, that God is not only the creator, but he's also the upholder of all things, so that the sun rises not simply because uh, that's the rotation of the earth, et cetera, et cetera, but the sun rises at God's behest, and, and tonight it will go down at his command, that nothing escapes his control. He's in sovereign control of all the details of this world. He's the creator. He's the upholder. He's a strong and mighty and great God. And if you have him as your help, you are blessed. And you can see through the scriptures that this was often the confidence of God's people. You might remember in Jeremiah 32 where the Lord promises that uh, there's going to be an exile, but then after the exile, people are going to return to the promised land and they're going to 
to buy and sell once more. And it's all too much for Jeremiah to grasp. He can't wrap his mind around it. He doesn't have the capability of understanding how that's even possible. And so he says, Ah, Lord God, you made the heavens and the earth by your great might and power. Nothing is too difficult for you. So he gave himself solace by reminding himself of the greatness and majesty of God. And you see this in the New Testament too. That Peter and John are arraigned before the Sanhedrin and forget, forbidden to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And then when they leave the Sanhedrin, when they gather with the church, and this prayer meeting breaks out, and what do they say? Sovereign Lord, you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Notice what these Jews are doing against your servant Jesus, the one whom you have anointed. But the point is that when everything around them seems so uncertain, when they feel most strongly their weakness because of the persecution and harassment of the religious leaders, they take solace in the greatness and might and majesty of God. Our God is strong. He's powerful. Nothing is too difficult for him. No power arraigned against him will ever be successful because of the greatness of our God. He is strong. But he's more than strong. He's also kind. And that's important, you know. It's more important than you think, perhaps, because... You know there are people who are strong and who could help you in your need, but they're not kind. They're self-centered, pursuing self-aggrandizement. In fact, sometimes they're even willing to use your weakness against you to make themselves look better. They're strong, but they're not kind. You can imagine children now. You're on the highway with your parents and all of a sudden your tire is punctured and you pull off to the side of the road and for some reason you or your parents are, are unable to, to fix the tire and so you just sit there and wait and you just wish someone would stop and help you in your need. And you see these trucks roll by with these big burly men sitting inside, you know, who could hold up the truck with one hand and loosen the, the lug nuts with the other, but, but they just keep on going. They don't care about you. They've got their own agendas. They're not concerned about your need. They're, they're, they're completely oblivious uh, to anything but their own concerns. And you just get so discouraged because you know they could help you, but they don't want to help you. They're strong, but they're not kind. And then finally you see a car pull over. And you're delighted. Someone has come to help you. And you wait for the door to open. But it seems to take a very long time. And, and then finally the door opens. And you see this lady come up to you with a, with a cane. And she's hunched over a bit. And she comes up to the window. She says, Sonny, what's the problem with you? And you tell her, my tire's punctured. And I, I can't fix my tire. Oh, she says, I wish I could help you. But my back's not what it used to be. 
When I was younger, I could have helped you, but now I can't. She's kind, but she's not strong. And so she's still unhelpful. Now, of course, if, if you had to choose between the one or the other, if you had to choose to be in the company of someone who's strong but didn't care or someone who, who cared but wasn't strong, of course, you, you'd go with that woman anytime. She seems to be a lovely person. Even though she can't help you, at least her company is more delightful. But the wonderful thing about God is that you don't have to choose between him being strong or him being kind because he is both strong and kind. That's what the psalmist tells himself. He says, not only is he the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who upholds all things, but he cares for the needy. He has a sympathetic heart. He's compassionate to those in distress. And so what the psalmist does is he surveys society and thinks of all the vulnerable people, vulnerable people he can think of. So he comes up with the, the, the oppressed, the, the hungry, the, the prisoners, the blind, those who are bowed down, those who are sojourners, the widow and, and the fatherless, the most vulnerable of society. He looks at them and he says, you know, all of these people, the Lord cares for the prisoners he sets free. Those who are, who are oppressed, he, he vindicates them. The hungry he feeds. The blind he, he gives them eyesight. Those who are bowed down he strengthens and encourages. And the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, well, he champions their cause. He's strong. Of course he's strong. But he's also kind. Very kind. Particularly kind to those who are in the greatest need. He's strong, and he's kind, and he's strong and kind forever. That's what he says at the end. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Yes, he's strong and kind now, but will he be so tomorrow? Absolutely. There's, there's no uh, regime change on the horizon. He's strong and kind for me, but will he be strong and kind for my children? Of, of course he will. Through all generations, he'll be strong and kind. Because strength and kindness is his unchangeably, immutably so. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. You don't need to be worried about him changing in any way. Because uh, his strength and his kindness is who he is. They're irrevocable. They're part of what makes God God. So that for him to be unkind and to be weak would be the same as for him to un-God himself. It's an impossibility. He is strong and kind forever. The psalmist says that's the kind of God you need. That's the kind of God you need. In all of the vagaries and difficulties and struggles of our lives, in all of our own profound weakness, when we come up against something that we simply are overwhelmed by and we realize that we have far surpassed the limits of our ability to cope with this, we need someone who is strong and who cares for us and who is strong and kind unchangeably. But I want you to notice uh, something else in this psalm. 
that's uh, the contrast that the psalmist draws between the righteous and the wicked at the end of verse 8. The Lord loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And so he's saying that God is strong and kind, but he's not strong and kind for all people. He's strong and kind for the righteous. For the wicked, his strength is used against them because he brings them to ruin. Now, if you know the Bible well, even if you don't know that well, you know that in the Old Testament, there are two categories of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. You see this right at the beginning of the Psalter, for instance, that uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These are the two categories of people. There are only two people. There are the righteous and the wicked. Now, when we think of the righteous and the wicked, we tend to think of terms of their behavior. As if the righteous are those who always do what is righteous and the wicked are those who only do and always do what is wicked. But I don't think that's the way that you should think of these two categories. It's true that the righteous are predominantly righteous in their ways and the wicked are characterized by disobedience and rebellion to the Lord. But you ought to see these categories as expressions of what these individuals do with God. That's what you see in the Old Testament. The righteous are not perfect, but, but the righteous trust in the Lord. The righteous submit to the sovereignty of God. The righteous are those who bend the knee and swear allegiance to the King of Kings. The righteous are those who are submissive to the God of their salvation. The wicked are not like that at all. The wicked are like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? They want nothing to do with him. They find, they find God's commandments a burdensome thing to them. They find his yoke too heavy. And uh, they want nothing to do with the Lord. And so here the Lord is saying that, that he loves the righteous. And he is against the wicked. He brings them to ruin. And really what the psalmist is saying is, the, your righteous or wicked, depending on your response to the Lord, or to put it in New Testament terms, you are righteous or wicked depending on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, the psalm, like all of Scripture, is, is about the Lord Jesus. But when you read this psalm, and when you think about the Lord Jesus as you read it, it really is a remarkable thing because it describes our Savior to a T. He's strong. Now, you might think, well, no, no, actually, I, I disagree with you. He, he wasn't that strong. He, he was born as a baby and helpless. I, I just had a, a grandson born yesterday, and uh, I haven't seen him yet. But, but earlier this week, I saw another baby in our congregation, and baby's absolutely helpless depending on his mother for everything, for food, for changing, for, for everything. He, this uh, little boy, Levi, can't do anything for himself. And so Jesus was weak. And then you think about the way that he was treated. He was ridiculed and scorned and mocked. He was put to death. His own disciples forsook him and fled. The religious leaders objected to him and sought to kill him. Oh, he wasn't strong. Oh, yes, he was strong. Because the Lord Jesus existed long before he became a child at Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. 
He is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, dwelling in, in the holy fellowship with the, with the Father and the Spirit from forever. And he's the one uh, who, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it. Remember what Paul says in Colossians, all things were made by him and for him. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, the, the fullness of deity dwells in, in bodily form. That's who Jesus was before he became a man. And look at who he is now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sits there in a, in a position of power and authority, uh, of rule, until all the nations become a footstool for him. He is the one to whom has uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He's the strong one, I tell you. And though he appeared weak, occasionally you see glimpses of his strength throughout his earthly ministry as you read through the Gospels. You see him stand at the grave of Lazarus in John 11. And this man who had been dead for four days hears the voice of the Son of God and comes out of his grave when he says, Lazarus, come forth. Or look at the Lord Jesus on the sea the tempestuous sea, when the, uh, the boat of his disciples was threatened to be overwhelmed by the water, and he stands up in the, in the midst of the raging sea, and he says, peace, be still, and everything was calm. Now, he's strong, I tell you. Or, or just look at what he does to the, to the tax collectors. And um, not the tax collectors, but, but those who were collecting money and selling in the temple. He, he drove them out. He's strong. And even in his weakness, so, the, so the, the height of his weakness, which undoubtedly was when he was on the cross, forsaken by his father, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in the depths of his weakness. He was powerful and strong because it was in his death that he engaged in combat with our enemy and destroyed him. He's strong, our Lord Jesus. He's so kind. You can't help but uh, see his kindness, his gentleness, his compassion as you read through the Gospels. He sees this crowd. They've been with him for a number of days, hanging on to every word of his teaching. And his disciples say to Jesus, you know, you need to send these, these people away because they're getting hungry. And he says, no. He has compassion on them and he feeds them. But then he sees the crowds, that they are like a sheep without a shepherd, that they're harassed by the religious leaders. And he has compassion on them and begins to teach them. Or, uh, Remember that time when he, he came up uh, to Nain and uh, just exiting the town, just purely coincidental, of course, sovereignly designed. He, he encounters a, a, a crowd going to, uh, to the grave with the widow who was burying, burying her, her son. And he stops and he puts his hand on the, on the beard. He uh, raises the young man to life and he lovingly gives him to her mother, his mother. Just so compassionate, so tender, so kind. And, then, and this, is, this is the one that, that often thrills me. It's, uh, he comes up to blind Bartimaeus. 
You know, Bartimaeus has been calling out for Jesus, and everyone's telling him to be quiet, and, and Jesus stops and says, so bring him to me. And, uh, and what, what does he say to Bartimaeus? He, he doesn't say, Bartimaeus, you're blind, so you don't know in whose presence you are, but you're in the presence of the king. And the right thing for you to do is to say, now, how can I serve you, okay? That's not what the Lord Jesus says. In fact, the Lord Jesus says, now, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that just profoundly gracious and compassionate? It's so upside down. It's so backwards that the mighty king comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's kind, I tell you. And uh, you can see his kindness and all of its brilliance at the cross. Who in the world would do what Jesus did for sinners? Who would be willing to take upon himself what is so thoroughly repugnant to him? So for the Lord Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God, who, who hates sin with a pure hatred, for him to be willing to take upon himself our sins, our infelicities, our impurities, as if they were his own. That's just simply out of this world. You can't wrap your mind around the kindness of God. What kind of Jesus is this that he would do this for you? Thomas Goodwin, to help us understand uh, the transfer of our sins to, to the Lord Jesus, he, he was... Uh, a friend of mine, he's been gone for 400 years. Um, he's an English Puritan, but, but he said, for the Lord Jesus to take upon himself the sins of his people is as shameful as to call a pure, chaste woman a prostitute. So out of keeping with who she is. And this is so out of keeping with who Christ is. He's, he's holy. He's perfect. He's, he's light in whom, in whom there's no darkness at all. And then for him to be considered the greatest sinner the world has ever known. And for him to embrace that willingly. And then to know that embracing our sin and being made sin for us meant that he would face the judgment and curse of a God whom he had unstintingly served. It boggles your mind if you think about it. It's just unthinkable that the Lord Jesus would show such kindness to sinners that he would take their place and bear the judgment and curse and wrath of God against sin. He is strong, I tell you. and He is kind, immeasurably kind. And he is that forever. You might think that uh, now that the Lord Jesus has gone to heaven, he has no more concerns with his people. You know, out of sight, out of mind, you're good friends with someone, then they move away, and you never speak to them again, it seems. But that's not the way it is with the Lord Jesus. His heart is still compassionate and gracious and kind to sinners, to those in need. In, in fact, because the Lord Jesus is glorified, his heart is even more capacious. He's even more compassionate, more tenderhearted, more loving than he has ever been for his people. His heart goes out to the poor and the needy and the weak and the helpless to care for them. And he will do that unchangeably, eternally, because he is the infinite God-man and he loves his people 
forever. And that's why you need the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that you need. That's why you need to come to him and ask him for grace and to confess to him all of your need and weakness and helplessness and the brokenness and ruin of your life and the devastation that sin has brought and the own limit, your own limits to, to helping yourself. You, you, you know, you're not to put yourself, put your trust in princes, not even if the prince is yourself. There, there's, there's no encouragement here for, for any self-confidence or self-help in any way. No, we need to abandon ourselves to, to this Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon him to help us in our time of need. And the wonderful thing is, is that the Lord Jesus will receive you. That's, that's the wonderful thing about him. He's so kind to sinners. He won't use your weakness against you. He won't say, well, why didn't you come earlier? Nor will he say, you've been here before. Can't you figure it out yourself? No, that's not the way he is. He's tenderhearted to those who are in need. And he invites you to come. And he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's the kind of Jesus we have. And because our lives are so precarious, you need the Lord Jesus Christ to be your helper. If you don't have him as your helper, it's not good for you. Because remember what it says there at the end of verse 9, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. I often think, uh, children, you probably know the, the, the game Jenga, you know, the tower game that you, you build. And you have to carefully pull the blocks out and place them on top. And, and I think that, that our lives are like that. They're precarious. They're, they're like Jenga tables on, on a, a Jenga towers on a, on a wobbly table. And, and all it takes is one shake. And we're ruined. And what will you do if you're ruined and you have no one to help you, no one to stand by you. All, all of the persons that you put your confidence in, your parents or your church or yourself, all of that will just pass away into oblivion. And, and there you are standing before God in his holy judgment. And what are you going to do then? Who will you have? Who will you cry out to for help? There will be no one there then. If you have not taken the Lord Jesus now, to be your help, he who is strong and kind and is that forever. So I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would take him, that you would trust in him, that you would receive him as he offers himself to you with such gentleness and compassion, with such power and strength. He says, take me and you may have me and I will be your help. And I will bless you. I haven't uh, spoken yet about the title that uh, the psalmist gives to the Lord. But you'll see that in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, who is, whose hope is in the Lord his God. It's not uncommon for the Lord to be called the God of Jacob. The psalmist does it in Psalm 20 verse 1. He does it in twice in Psalm uh, 46, in verses 7 and 11. You'll find it as well throughout the prophets. Uh, it's, it's not that God isn't called the God of Abram. He, he is. 
and the God of Isaac and the God of Israel. He's, he's called that as well. But here he's called the God of Jacob. And I think it's profoundly deliberate because you know who Jacob was. He's the schemer. He's the one who makes plans. He's the one who uh, figures things out himself. I can handle this. When Laban goes against me, I know what to do. When Esau is about to meet me, I know how to appease him. Jacob is a self-made man, one who puts his confidence in princes, in a son of man. That is, he puts his confidence in himself. And you remember in uh, Genesis 32, he's about to meet Esau. He can't go back to Laban. He's afraid to go ahead to Esau. He's in between a rock and a hard place. And he puts his family before him and divides them up into groups so as to overwhelm Esau so that Esau might be pacified. And then he, he goes back over the brook Jabak. And that evening he meets with God. I believe it's the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. That Jesus took not the form of a man as he did at his birth, but, but he came in a man-like form. And there he wrestled with Jacob all night long. And Jacob, of course, is a strong man. Jacob is prevailing. And then, uh, and then the Lord Jesus touches uh, Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. He really breaks Jacob and weakens him. And Jacob's response is, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what this psalm is all about. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Blessed is he who comes in weakness with no strength, who cannot rely upon himself any longer, who has come to the end of his own abilities, but who clings in hope to this God and says, I will not let you go because what I need more than anything else is your blessing. And we're told that uh, when daybreak came, Jacob went on his way, but he went on his way limping in weakness, but the sun was shining on him. And really, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the way to go throughout life. Not as self-made men and women, as boys and girls who have it all together, who don't need the God of Jacob, who are fine by yourselves, thank you very much. No, it's those who come in weakness, who limp through life because of all the struggles and difficulties and hardships that sin has brought in this world, both hardships without and hardships within. We come broken and needy before the Lord, limping but clinging to him and knowing that the sunshine of his face is upon us as we go through life. No wonder the psalmist commits himself to praising the Lord. Isn't this a grand God? Isn't this a wonderful God? one who is so gloriously strong and yet so indescribably kind and who is that forever. You, you know, if, if we were put into a room together and, and asked to design a God, you would never come up with a God like this, one who is strong and kind and who 
shows the strength and kindness and the self-giving of the Lord Jesus on the cross. No wonder the psalmist says that he's going to praise the Lord. And no wonder he recommends that you do that as well. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.